0: It's really wonderful to be with you folks this morning, and I'm very, very thankful for Pastor Jackie for making it possible to visit with you. This is probably about my third or fourth time in Idaho, and uh, finally got to Calvary Chapel Buell, so I guess we saved the best the last, right? (laughs) So anyway, uh, looking forward to sharing with you today and tonight, tonight about the dinosaurs, which are Really important because uh, the children all of all ages like to learn about dinosaurs, and, but all the information is from an evolutionary point of view that they lived millions of years ago and evolved from lower reptiles, neither of which is true. So if you'd like to come out tonight, you'll learn the real history of dinosaurs. It'll be real helpful to explaining to your friends, to know yourself, and uh, for your children and grandchildren. And uh, they, it's a really wonderful study because they're actually mentioned in the scripture. They're, Not only mentioned, but they're one of the six mega groups of God's original creation. So they're very important. They have uh, probably at least right now, conservatively speaking, identified 340 species of dinosaurs. So this is a mega group. So anyway, tonight, uh, this morning, uh, before we start, for your ongoing education, for yourself, your children, your grandchildren, I just want to mention that after the service we have a few things out there for education. We have a couple DVDs, uh, Scientific Evidence for Noah's Flood, we're on the dinosaurs. And then I'm thankful to introduce my book which I've been working on for many many years it got so big we had to divide it to two volumes so the second volume will be out uh, in about a, a month but this is Science versus Textbook Evolution and what it does it addresses all of the these two volumes will address all of the evolutionary propaganda in the high school books that are used in, throughout the United States in Idaho what they'll, be, what they'll be teaching your kids this year in Idaho is in this book right here and this, this particular book covers the fossil record. They tell the children, that like today you can see, well, we have invertebrates, we have fish, we have amphibian, we have reptile. We don't have anything in between. There's no evolution going on today. So they say, well, it happened millions of years ago. So since they think the fossils occurred millions of years ago, they, Darwin predicted that transitional fossils, that is, creatures halfway between a crab and a fish or a fish and a frog, would eventually be found. So they tell the students the fossil record supports evolution. It shows that life evolved over millions of years. So they have all the categories. They go from bacteria to to invertebrates, invertebrates to fish, fish to amphibian, amphibian to reptile, reptile to mammal, mammal to apes and monkeys, to ape, man, and to humans. That's their theoretical ladder. So we trace their entire ladder here in the fossil record. And we quote from the textbook, the high school textbook, Holt, Reinhart, Addison, Wesley, Prentice Hall, and on the next page, we provide the evidence against it. And when I provide evidence against it, I quote from authorities all over the world who are university professors and university teachers and writers of science, scientific American, discover, nature, all these top evolutionary magazines in biology. And the authorities that I quote against the high school textbook are themselves evolutionists. And the reason that works out is because when you, they can say this stuff is propaganda because they believe it happened. But when you talk to a person who is, his PhD is in fish, then you talk to him, uh, they have to report what is true. And they have to report that there is no false evidence showing the origin of fish from invertebrates. But what they're saying is, in my particular area at this particular time, there's no evidence that show that invertebrates invertebrates evolved in fish, but I believe in the consensus. I believe in evolution. So they're loyal evolutionists, but they just made it in their particular category. there is no evidence. So we quote from every category, and they all say the same thing. Okay, let's go with today's. Scientific evidence knows what. And if we could just get at least maybe one of these first lights out up here, that would help. Uh, that, good. good. <clears throat> Alright. First, next. Just watch my point, and we'll just do it. This is what God said, God said, God made the beast of the earth after his kind and cattle after their kind and everything that creeps upon the earth after their kind and God saw that it was good. So God is telling us that he created every basic kind like the dogs, cats, deer, with a genetic code that would cause them to reproduce their own kind indefinitely and that's all they can produce. You can have variation so we have 37 varieties of flying squirrels, but they're all flying squirrels. They're not half weasel, let alone half reptile. We have uh, 24 species of ladybugs. They all look the same, just different colors, different species, but they're all ladybugs. We have, for your encouragement, we have 3,000 species of mosquitoes, but they're all mosquitoes. So even though there can be variation within a species, because God knew the long haul there'd to be capacity to adapt to different environments. So now we have polar bears as well as pandas, but they're all bears. And then because of the problem of sin, original sin, Cain killed his brother and it got worse, God brought a flood of judgment upon the earth. And, God be, and behold, I even I do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven and everything that is in the earth shall die. So God brought this great flood of judgment upon the earth. The geologists who deny that, as you'll see in a minute, really don't care whether it was a a great flood or not. It doesn't make a difference. What they do care about is that it was a flood of judgment. That's what they want to get away from. That's why they deny that, that there was a global flood. So, the flood came upon the earth, as God says, it lasted about 371 days, approximately six months in developing and six months in going off, and left behind some very convincing tracks to demonstrate to us that there was a flood of judgment in the past. First sedimentary layers all over the world, sandstone, siltstone, mudstone, limestone, etc. These are the results. Sedimentary rocks are deposited out of water. Igneous rocks come from volcanoes, sedimentary rocks are deposited out of water. So it means water flowed across the United States in vast quantities and across the world, de- de- developing these sedimentary layers of rock. Okay? Then, in addition to that, fossils are all over the world. These were caused by Noah's flood as well. Fossils are creatures which most of the creatures, especially humans, which are fast and can move in the time of the flood, higher ground, simply drown, and with all the brush and timber disintegrated in the and the water and decayed away at, during and after the flood. But a lot of cr- creatures, precious few humans, a lot of creatures were buried. And if they are buried, then they could be fossilized because they could be changed into fossils, which we'll get to in just a minute. Okay, now Charles Lyell came along in 1830. He's a lawyer and not a geologist. But in the 1800s is when they were having the Industrial Revolution and they do philosophies, trying to get away from the Bible promoted that progress is being made, machines are being created to do all the work, and everything, everything is getting better every day in every way. So, and plus the immorality among the higher classes and the middle classes of England and France was very, uh, taken much more license than they were, uh, could do so under the Christianity. And Christianity, you know, it ruled the world then. That's why we have Christendom. They were the Christian states of Europe. All those, all the states of Europe converted to Christianity. That's why the Muslims call the people of the Western world, the people of the book. So Christianity reigned, but there, God says in the end, there will be apostasy. And this began early, but especially in science, began in 1830 when Lyell wrote the book, Principles of Geology, in which he convinced the new geologist that the sedimentary layers around the world were not deposited by Noah's flood rapidly, but by slow and gradual erosion and local floods over millions of years of time. So they estimated that the slow and gradual development by today's erosion rates meant that every foot of sandstone or mudstone probably took 5,000 years. Today's erosion rates for North America are about 300 years per inch. Where Mississippi is eroding material into the Gulf of Mexico, you can measure it, it's about 300 years per inch. Okay, so that was called uniformitarianism. They said, they said that no, no geological process has ever been on the earth except what we can see today. Lo- local erosion, slow erosion, and local floods. Okay, that was a doctrine which uh, helped Darwin to go ahead and write his book. He was frustrated by the idea that the earth was 10,000 years or less, if you trace back the genealogy of Christ. It's much less than 10,000 years. And he knew that all these species by totally naturalistic means could not evolve. He couldn't evolve them in just a short period of time. He did millions of years, but he didn't know where to get it until he read Darwin Lyell's book, and he believed it when he was on the Beagle. So he took that leap of faith, and he wrote origin of the species, which he said there was no special creation by the word of God. Everything could be accounted for by naturalistic processes, little tiny changes, mutations, and so forth over millions of years of time. And of course, he predicted that by and by fossils would support his theory that he knew there were no fossils to support his theory in his time, but he predicted when you start looking for them, there'll be fossils found showing a creature halfway between a crab or some invertebrate and a fish, between a fish and amphibian, okay, next. But God knew about these things. He is not surprised. We have been surprised, happened in our time and shocked and unhappy, but God was not surprised. So he actually prophesied through Peter exactly what had happened, that the, that the theory of uniformitarianism would come along, denying the flood, and the theory of evolution would come along, denying special creation. Here's the words, knowing this first, knowing this first that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? That's a challenge to the second coming of the Lord. They know that Christians are all over the earth, believing in Jesus, came and died for their sins, and rose to the dead. They also know that Christians believe that Jesus is coming back to establish his kingdom to judge the earth. And they are saying in the last time since Jesus didn't come in 1000 AD or 1200 AD or 14 well, he's not gonna come at all. Where is the promise of his coming? But they base their argument on two points that they think are scientific. Notice what they say here. For since the fathers fell asleep, that's the original people, all things continue as they have from the beginning of creation. God said he created the heavens and earth in six days, and on the seventh day he rested, which means the creation stopped. There are no creation processes going on in the world. There are no processes by which you could study how the earth began because those processes stopped on the sixth day. But they believe evolution by naturalistic processes continue indefinitely. They began millions of years ago, 4.5 billion years ago, and they evolved little by little, each little creature, little new changes, and they're gonna continue indefinitely. So they say, for all things continue as they have from the beginning of creation, by naturalistic means. Now, God also says, go ahead, next. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. So God is saying they're willingly ignorant of two things and there's plenty of data for it. In other words, willingly ignorance means you're unwilling to address the data and the information. And he says there's plenty of data which would lead them to belief in God and belief in the scriptures, but they are unwilling to address it honestly and be honest about it. One here is what? Special creation. The creation the heavens and earth were created by the word of god and then something else next whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished so god is saying there's enormous amount of evidence to support his word that life came about by special creation and that there was a worldwide flood that judged the world and both of those you see they have denied and they begin but with denying the flood which which by implication showed that Genesis was inaccurate. So Christians who did not do their homework capitulated and compromised and they said, oh well then, we, since the geologists know what they're talking about, we assume that Noah's flood was local, just a Mesopotamia. And when Darwin wrote his book, the Christians that didn't do their homework and then stick with the word compromised, and so they have said, well we assume God created, but he used evolution as a process. And that's foolishness because this is a cruel, cruel process, survival of the fittest. God would never believe that. Even Thomas Jefferson, who was a deist, not a Christian, said that a no wise God would ever use that inefficient process to bring life into existence. Okay, so here we have the red sandstone, red so- sandstone in Las Vegas. This, these rocks, which are sandstone, were once, ex- once the sand which is by the seashore the exact same thing, but when the worldwide flood came, they were washed all over the world, and because of the conditions of the flood, the sand, when it was deposited, became sandstone. The mud from the rivers became mudstone, the silt from the rivers became siltstone, and plus we have limestone and other sedimentary layers. Okay, next. So why did that happen? Because we have local floods all over the world today, and no sedimentary rocks are being anywhere. Katrina didn't develop any sedimentary rocks. Neither did the one in Indonesia. The reason is because the worldwide flood was a once in a lifetime experience. It happened once, it'll never happen again. God told Noah, it will never be a flood of waters on the world again to cover the whole world. The the, the vapor canopy covering the earth, the water canopy, vapor canopy, was raining down 40 days and 40 nights, probably at a rate of at least two feet a day. And the uh, subterranean volcanoes, the fountains of the deep, were subterranean volcanoes exploding all over the Earth. And subterranean volcanoes, among the things that they spew out is water. So lots of water is coming besides the rain. And because of the conditions of the chemistry going on and the atmospheric change, radical reduction in atmospheric pressure caused the creation of cementing agents. And these cementing agents you can learn about in any college. They don't believe it came in the flood, but it, they, are, they recognize that cementing agents are a prominent part of the geological world. And they are, as you see, calcite, iron oxide, and silicons. They are essentially little things that can glue things together. Iron oxide, calcite, and silicons. Calcite's the main one. So when the sand came in, it was uh, when they washed the seashore over across the land, It was being filled with cementing agents day by day by day. So when it was deposited, it changed from sand to sandstone, from mud to mudstone. And like I say today, in contrast to uh, Lyell's theory of uniformitarianism, you have floods all over the world today and no sedimentary rocks are being deposited. So they couldn't have been deposited slowly and gradually because the process didn't happen today. Furthermore, no fossils are being created today. No flood that you've ever seen, no matter how big it is, uh, floods in Asia, or even in Japan, the big tsunami, no fossils were created. You can have carcasses, people can die, dogs can die, but when you, they, when, you, when you dig it out, it's just a rotting carcass. It's not a fossil, okay? Because the conditions aren't there, because there's no atmospheric changes, there's no chemistry changes going on, there's no volcanoes going off that can do this, okay, next. So then, Subterranean volcanoes. I told you, fountains of the deep, or subterranean volcanoes, going all over, as well as land volcanoes, and there are—they are spewing not only volcanic lava out, but there are tons and tons and tons of what gases from the volcanoes. A lot of people died just from asphyxiation from volcanoes before the lava ever gets to them. The guy at Mount St. Helens, Harry Truman, he probably was not—he was probably dead long before the lava got to him, and covered his wagon because of the gases coming down there. But these gases fell into the water during the flood. Sulfur dioxide, sulfur dioxide, among other things, which when it hits water and land, becomes sulfide. And it has they are acidic. These gases are acidic. And the acidity of the gases co- cause, they dissolve minerals into solution. They dissolve minerals. The rocks are going along with minerals in them and the acidity of the gases in the hot water dissolved the minerals into solution. So you have liquid minerals such as colloidal silver, gold can be put into colloidal, colloidal state also. And then when a deer was buried in the sand, becoming a sandstone, the waters have minerals in solution. So they're under pressure and they permeate the teeth and the antlers and the ribs and they replace the bone with minerals. So if you go to your local college, college or high school, you'll you read any books, fossils are formed by per-mineralization. Here's what, next. So here's, here's going, this what we had in the time of the flood. Huge amounts of uh, gases in the air and, and among other things, those gases caused forest fires all over the world at the same time, so forth, okay, next. So there we are. So minerals in solution, per mineralization. Any high school or college textbook will tell you fossils are formed by per mineralization. But they tell you something wrong, they say fossils are formed slowly and gradually. We, was, we were over at uh, Hageman's museum and on the board with the horses, it's, it says, a little picture of a fish down at the bottom, dead. It said the fish slowly died and slowly sank to the bottom in the sand and then slowly and gradually, even, even over millions of years, it becomes covered really by sediment, day by day until it becomes a fossil. Well, fish in the ocean do not fall to the bottom. They are eaten before they get to the bottom. They're eaten, and what falls to the bottom is the little last of the carcass of bone, and even the microorganisms eat that, and then they go back in the soil very quickly, just like today's animals are dying all over the world today but they're not becoming fossils, scavengers eat them, carnivores, carnivores, and then the microorganisms, and then they go right back in the soil. They're biodegradable, biodegradable. So next, to to emphasize that, we can quote from some scientific sources, this this shrimp was recently found, and uh, shrimp is flesh, isn't it? Okay, so this shows how fast it was, Covered by sediment and fossilized, not slowly and gradually over 17 million years. Next, watch the muscles. Not the muscles were preserved by what combination of acidic waters and a low oxygen content as the animal was buried rapidly. All the animals or fossils had to be buried rapidly, or they would have rotted away. That speaks of catastrophism on a global scale, because these animals are all over the world. We have things so tiny. We have three mites, three mites clinging to a feather. Now, what do you think the lifetime of a mite is? And yet, they're perfectly fossilized. Okay, next. So the question is then, regarding these sedimentary layers, what's the best explanation? Local floods over millions of years of time, or a global flood in a short period of time? Well, fortunately, we have three witnesses to this. First witness is God. God has told us specifically in Genesis what he did. And whether people believe it or not is inconsequential, but it's on record. You know, it's like your driver's license thing. Uh, If you don't read it, then you're going to disobey the rules. The cop's going to pull you over and you say, I didn't know that. He says, that's your problem. You had to take this test. You're responsible. So God has put it on record. He did it. He put it on record. But also we have human witnesses. And we have the earth as a witness. Job says, speak to the earth and it shall teach thee. Okay, let's first look at next some human witnesses. So here we read with regard to Egypt. In this regard, we are reminded of the sacred sermon, a hermetic text of Egyptian origin. This is ancient Egypt that speaks with awe of lordly men devoted to the growth of wisdom who lived before the flood. And his civilization was destroyed. So long, thousands of years before there was any evolution argument, the ancient Egyptians have texts, religious texts that talk about people who lived before the flood. Okay. Now they go on to say this: this is the old, probably one of the oldest cultures in the world. Next, with the deluge tradition, the Egyptians connected the commemoration of the dead. So they had ancient festivals. The ancient people had festivals to the dead. They were three-day festivals. Uh, and they were celebrated. They were pagans, They, after the flood, they became pagans again within two or 300 years. And they were showing sympathy for the people who died in the flood. And the, they were three days which corresponds, as you, take, as you trace it down through history, they were October 31st, 30th, 31st, and 1st. And they are now seen uh, in the world today. The leftover for that is the holiday of Halloween. Halloween is the modern representation of that. Hallow means Halloween means hallowed Eve's Day. And it was celebrated by orange and black. The black, the night, orange were the fires that they burned. And the natives of Africa in different places on this night of the ancient turn. They were black natives and they would take white paint and draw skeletons of themselves and dance around the fire in in showing reference for the people who died in the flood. It's now celebrated as Halloween. Okay, now, this ceremony was observed on the 17th day of Ather, that's an Egyptian month. Ather is an Egyptian month. So the ceremony of the festival of the dead was celebrated on the 17th Ather, which corresponds with the mosaic account of the flood. So the Egyptians, since the days of the Exodus and Israel's imprisonment, you know, 400 years in Egypt have been enemies. They both not only have, an, these ancient people both not only have an account of a global flood, they have it occurring on the same beginning on the same day of the month. The Egyptians is what? The 17th day of Ather. Moses says in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the 17th day of the month. That is an amazing historic phenomenon to have these two ancient nations, enemy nations, attesting to this. Now we go other places in Africa, such as Sudan, the natives of Sudan call Lake Chad, the Lake of Noah. And they believe that its flood submerging the whole earth had its origin in this lake. And Persia, Persia is the ancient country Persia, is now Iran. And we read, the Persians had a tradition that the world had been corrupted by Auremen, the prince of darkness. It was necessary to cover it with a flood so as to sweep away its impurities. And the natives of Greenland have a tradition according to which 10 generations of men had lived upon the earth. When the universal flood came and the earth capsized like a boat and the whole human race was destroyed. Greenland is a pretty remote place, isn't it? How many generations did they say there were 10? Isn't it interesting when you look in Genesis that from Adam to Noah is 10 generations? Next. Western Hemisphere, Papago Indians. Then a fearful catastrophe shattered the golden days. A great flood destroyed all flesh, wherein it was the breath of life. Northern Hemisphere, in Alaska, having been warned in a dream <clears throat> that a deluge would desolate the earth, Bu built a raft in which he saved himself, and his family, and all the animals. To date, we have at least. 550 accounts from the various cultures of the world of a global flood, 550 from Asia, from Europe, from Africa, from North and South America, North American Indians, South American Indians, the Hopi Indians of the Grand Canyon. It is unthinkable, unreasonable to think that all of these civilizations could have made up the same fairy tale, the very same fairy tale. They had, it had to have its roots in a real story. And of course, Noah's sons passed the word down because it, be, it was the greatest historic event of all time. And when we got to the Tower of Babel, it went into all the languages. See, next, physical evidence. Now third, physical evidence. Number one, vast sedimentary layers that are too great to be counted by local floods. Local floods can do a little bit, and uh, create a lot of trouble like Katrina and so forth. But again, when you're through with that two weeks later, you can go in with a shovel and dig it out because it's just plain old sand or mud. So here we have the Great Red Sandstone in Colorado. This is one contiguous deposit of sandstone, 200,000 square miles. Obviously, local floods from Colorado River or Mississippi or whatever could not have done that. Furthermore, see how deep it is and thick it is? This had to occur at one event, because otherwise there'd be, there, if they, it just went two feet, then there'd be forests growing on top of it, just like there are out of here your barren area, with sagebrush. But you see there's no area of paleo soils, ancient soils at all, it was contiguous. Next. So here's the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is one of the best places to see sedimentary layers. It's mostly sandstone and uh, limestone. So, uh, as you know from reading the books that you have in high school and college and going down there yourselves, that all these layers have been identified. You see the red one up there, it's called the Red Wall Limestone that goes all the way to Las Vegas. And down below, the one on the bottom is called the Tapete Sandstone. And there's others which we'll talk about. But they've been measured for years and years, and they have charts and so forth. Well. <clears throat> What is important is not whether or not the Colorado River carved that canyon. What is important is where did these sediment layers come from? What caused them? Now let's suppose you and I are down in the middle of that canyon in a, in a, in a lifeboat. We do, they do it all the time. ICR takes people down that, And you're floating along there, and you stop for a little bit, and the guy's talking. And he said, that's the sandstone. You see it there, and you see it there. The question is, well, I wonder how far back it goes. If we could get a little drill and get in it and drill this way and drill that way, how far back would we go before we ran out of sandstone? Where would it just become dirt or something else? So would you go back 10 feet or 100 feet? Would you go back a mile or 10 miles? Well, they're able to measure these things, and the Tapeats sandstone, which you see if you're in a life raft, you're looking this way and this way, the Tapete Sandstone, which you see there, goes back this far. I don't think that was, could, could be accounted for by the Mississippi River local floods. That is one contiguous deposit of sandstone. So nothing but a global flood could do this. Then on top of that, we have the St. Peter Sandstone, which we'll look at. St. Peter's sandstone is the brownish color, covers all of the United States and clear up into Canada. That's also one contiguous layer of sandstone. And there are books which show these, uh, Suchert's books on geology. It's just phenomenal to see. They're, all, they're known as contiguous layers. I mean, they're deposited at the same time. Next. Coal is made of compacted plant material. Next. It takes 20 feet of compacted plant material to make one foot of coal. When you realize that we have coal seams that are 100 feet thick, means there had to be an awful lot of plants there at the same time to compact them into 100 feet. So you have the great forest, for instance, of Oregon and Washington, millions of trees, it's raining 40 days and 40 nights, what would happen? The rain would wash away the soil so the roots would have nothing to hold on to, and the entire forest would fall at the same time and float in great masses until they became waterlogged, and then sedimentary layers would go on top of them and compact them. And that's exactly what happened. But the evolutionists believe it happened over millions of years, of course. They have to have these millions of years. They say over hundreds of thousands of years, trees dropped their leaves, creating humus, and then over hundreds of thousands of years, the humus Next solidified into peat bogs, like this in Ireland, and the peat bogs over thousands of years, hundreds of thousands, compacted into coal seams anywhere from a foot to two or three feet or 50 or 100 feet thick. Okay, not possible. Next, see here, where the arrows are? That's where it really is today. Those coal seams there, what's on top of it, sedimentary rock? and below it sedimentary rock, and then coal seams down further. That's where they are on the world today. We have had evolutionary scientists who have tried to create coal. One guy for, tried for 15 years to create coal. He put plants in his lab and to tried to do it under uniformitarian slow and gradual ways of heating got no success. One day he did a serendipity experiment. He put the plants under pressure and the plants became coal in four hours. And Oregon scientists had done the same thing with the clippings of hay up in Oregon and written it up in the geological magazine. And they got complaints from all over the United States saying, you can't do that, don't you know uniformitarianism? They're all evolutionists too. Don't you know uniformitarianism demands it took slow and gradually? Their answer was very simple. Sir, we did it. There's no argument. We did it, four hours. Okay, here we go. Dr. Hooker, furthermore, the theory that peat forms coal is quite unbelievable on its face. No place on Earth does peat even faintly resemble coal. Peat, wherever found, is still peat, neither is there any indication whatsoever that coal is being formed in swampy areas anywhere on Earth, the notion is pure fantasy. Okay, quick, quick. Next, we're gonna skip this because we're running out of time here. Next, next. Okay, polystrate fossil trees. Poly means many, strata. So here we have flood coming along, laying down a layer, then our layer, another layer, another layer, another layer, layer. so we have many strata. We have many places on the earth where there's one tree going through all this strata, polystrate fossil trees. So if they really formed at 5,000 years per foot, this tree would have had to be alive for 150,000 years. while it slowly developed sedimentary layers at 5,000 years per foot to cover it. That's impossible. Next i gonna skip this too, I'm to get on to the next thing, quick, quick, that's it, right, next. Not only do we have petrified wood all over the world, we have petrified forests, and these, the trees were floating along, and because there's minerals in solution, right, the minerals in solution permeated not only animals' bones, but the trees, causing them to be petrified. And that's what we have in Arizona, there are 10,000 trees there in Arizona, in that forest, next. Hard as a rock. Okay, next. Dr. Russell says clusters of stumps were buried upright with some penetrating as much as three meters. That's nine feet of overlying sediment in evidence of the rapidity. Dr. Russell is an evolutionist, a dinosaurologist. He's saying that they're nine foot high stumps. They're beautifully preserved and they had to be buried rapidly. Not slowly and gradually at two, 300 years per inch. Next. So here they are in Yellowstone, and the people in Yellowstone have said, well, they were called fossil forests. Slowly and gradually, they began to fossilize over hundreds of thousands of years. And we've, creation people have gone up there and explained to them that is impossible. That is impossible. And they were buried by the flood, and they said, no way, how could a flood deposit stumps right side up? Well, what would happen would be, they're floating along, and they're getting waterlogged, when they're getting waterlogged, the butt end is heavier, so it turns down and starts floating. Plus, in many cases, as of this, they're also getting some of them mineralized, so they're becoming like a telephone post, solids. And so they're floating, and the water's coming down. Here is muddy hills, and they stick in the muddy hill because they're solid, cement almost. And then the flood keeps coming down, leaving them exposed, looking like they grew there but many of these don't have any roots, so they couldn't have grown there. So the evolutionists said, that's impossible. tell, next, there they are again, see how high they are above the ground, next, until Mount St. Helens came along. And when Mount St. Helens came along, as you know, it blew what? Thousands of trees into Spirit Lake, remember? And you saw the pictures, they're all floating there for many day, weeks and weeks. Well, if you'd have come back six, or, six to nine months later, this is what you'd have seen, all floating upright. And creation divers have come back there three or four months later, and some of those, because they've gotten waterlogged, not mineralized, because there's no minerals in the water, they have sunk the, down the, to the muddy bottom of the lake and are standing upright. Okay, So deposits, here's from, now from Geology Magazine says what? Deposits of recent mud flows on Mount St. Helens demonstrate conclusively that stumps can be transported and deposited upright. So they've changed their tune because of science, they, what they see. Okay. Let's, next, let's skip this and go to the next one quick. Fossils, we've talked about how they're found. Here we go. This is the great uh, Dinosaur National Monument where thousands and thousands of dinosaur fossils are fossilized in one area. One area. It had to be a catastrophe because animals, animals don't go back to the same burial ground over thousands of years just to all die there out of sentiment for something like that. This is, in this area in Utah, there are thousands of dinosaurs all buried in the same place. And rapidly, because they're perfectly preserved, the bones. Next, here is the agate bone bed in Nebraska. There is approximately 9,000 animals in that one bone bed in Nebraska. So again, dinosaurs can be found individuals at just one, like uh, Psittacosaurus in the Gobi Desert, or three or four of them, or parts and pieces. But sometimes they're found in mass burials up in Montana. Dr. Horner, evolutionist, reports this. At a conservative estimate, we have found the tomb of ten thousand dinosaurs in one place in Montana, and also up in Alberta, Canada. Next. Okay, if you younger kids, marine organisms are creatures that live in the sea, such as seashells, right? Creatures that live in the sea. Okay. Next. Well, here they are. See those white things all over the land there? Those are fossilized seashells. And this is not Newport Beach or Huntington Beach or Laguna Beach. This is Arizona. And we have them also in Nevada, 7,000 feet elevation Nevada and all over the world. Next. These are oyster shells. Let's let's look look, look up close. See those perfectly preserved oyster shells. Where are they? 10 miles inland in Peru. 10 miles inland. I have two shark's teeth at home, about this big, called megalodons. One was found 100 miles inland in Florida, one was found 100 miles inland in California. Next. The high school textbook even tells the kids that what? Seashells are found on Mount Everest. Mount Everest is the highest mountain in the world, 17,000 feet. When you climb up there, what do you find? Fossilized seashells. Next. Tracks, quick. These are dinosaur tracks. Dinosaur tracks are very important to our Lessons, because how come we have them? When you and I make tracks by the seashore, they're washed away quickly. When you and I go out in the woods on a rainy day, make wonderful tracks which are gone, very soon afterwards by what? By the rain, by wind, by snow, or other track makers, they're destroyed. So maybe in a dry climate, they'll last up for two, three weeks or two, three months. These, the flood was 4,500 years ago and the, and, the, and the evolutionists think they were made a hundred million years ago. But we know they're made 4,500 years, but why, how can they last for 4,500 years when ours are gone in days? The reason is because you and I make our tracks on what? Soil, native soil, sand and dust, which is easily corrupted. The dinosaurs were not able to walk on their own soil after the first week because it's raining two feet of rain a day By the time they were here, and they're trying to get away to a better situation, they're going to go, say, 10 or 15 miles over there. By the time they get over there, because of the amount of rain, the native soil has been washed away, topography is uneven, and new sand or mud or silt has been deposited there containing cementing agents. So when they got there, they were walking on freshly deposited cement, for all intents and purposes. And that's where they've lasted for 4,500 years. Here they are. And, except for Antarctica, which is all ice, these dinosaur tracks have been found on every single continent of the world. So this event had to be going on worldwide. Next, quick, quick, ripple marks. They move all day long by the water. Next, they move all day long by the wind. But these have never moved for 4,500 years. Fossilized ripple marks showing how fast it lithified to, 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 to uh, keep, uh, create them. Here they are, and here they are next, with dinosaur tracks, showing that the t- dinosaurs, this was all going on when dinosaurs were alive, moving. Now remember, this is not their native soil. They didn't, these dinosaurs did not walk around on blocks of rock. This was soft enough for them to make a print, right? and then it, it hardened quickly afterwards, okay? Next, <clears throat> evidence of rapid burial lithification. For your younger kids, lithification means when your dad makes a sidewalk, you probably saw him make a sidewalk, puts the forms, it's all gushy. He puts his sand and his stuff, cement in it, stirs it, it's all gushy. Pretty soon within two hours, it becomes hard. That's lithification, going from soft to hard, okay? Watch. Chimarasaurus <clears throat> Camaras- <clears throat> is the uh, Best-known dinosaur in the United States because so many of it, so much of its fossil has been found. Now we're going to quote from an evolutionary dinosaurologist. Next, this skeleton was preserved almost completely intact, with just a few bones missing or lying uh, slightly out of natural position. It must be supposed that the carcass of this animal was buried very rapidly. Not slowly and gradually at 200 years per inch or 5,000 years per foot, but rapidly because it's a huge dinosaur, long neck, long tail, probably weighed 50 tons, and almost every single bone is in position. It had to be buried rapidly. Next. So Calvary Chapel Church has a little picnic, and we go out and have a wonderful time, and if we forget, and leave behind six eggs. How long do you think they would last out in the woods? Not long because they'd be eaten by predators or they would rot away, right? However, these eggs have lasted for 4,500 years. These are dinosaur eggs found in Montana. And when they were laid by the dinosaur, before they could hatch, before they could be eaten by predators and before they could rot away, they were covered with sand, mud, with cementing agents, and water with minerals in solution. Some of them even have the fossilized embryos inside. Oh, wow. Next. <clears throat> it can definitely be said that through all the geologic formations in which fish remains occur, a large proportion of the remains consists of entire fishes or of sections in which every scale is in position. Fish fossilize so quickly that not only their bones are preserved, but the whole fish, scales and all. That would have to be extremely rapid. Next. Let's skip this a couple of quotes we'll go next. How about that? Wow. A fish in the process of eating another fish now could that happen if this is this material really fought, really really and truly developed on the uniformitarian principles at two hundred years per inch that's what the erosion is today. Could that happen? will these fish stay in one place for two hundred years? be done for that to cover them? no. This, these fish were swimming in water, weren't they? They were swimming in water. At one point, they were this far away from each other, in water. He had to be going through water. And then, in many cases, just the time he got that far, the, the whole situation became rock, limestone. Look at here. They're found year after year after year. Next. Year after year after year. This, this, no way in the world could uniformitarianism, uniformitarianism, local floods, accomplish anything like this. Next, ichthyosaurs are mentioned in scripture as sea dragons. And we have different kinds, mosasaurus, pleosaurs, ichthyosaurs. Look how beautifully that's preserved. You see the rib, case, the rib case, the paddles, the eye sockets. That was swimming in water, which became limestone immediately. These are found in limestone, which is a whole lecture on itself. Limestone is caused by radical reduction of atmospheric pressure, causing uh, carbon dioxide to precipitate into calcium carbonate, which is cement, right? Okay? Here's the thing. It's formed only in seawater. Only in seawater, but it's found on all the continents of the world. And none of it is found in the sea. Okay, next. Here is the baby ichthyosaur in the process of coming out the birth canal. Before it could fall away, it was covered with, the water was changed into limestone. Carbon dioxide is precipitated into calcium carbonate when there's a radical reduction of atmospheric pressure, which was caused by what? The vapor canopy, water canopy collapsing, causing a radical reduction in atmospheric pressure. Next. Shrimp preserves so quickly that the antenna are still intact. Next. Here's our last one. Pterosaurs, which are mentioned in the scriptures as the uh, burning, fiery serpents, burning, fiery serpents. They are found all over the world, especially in Nebraska. But new ones were found in uh, uh, Brazil. Let's look. The Aurepae pterosaurs are miraculously preserved. When an animal died in the Aurepae water, it was quickly coated with a layer of sediment, not slowly and gradually. How quickly the nodules formed is hard to say, but judging from the presence of fossilized muscle and sometimes even bacteria on the skin of Aurepae animals, it could have happened within hours. It says not only was the the bones preserved, But the muscles, the skin, and bacteria, what do you think the lifetime of a bacteria is? Fossilized. So that shows you how quickly that had happened. Even these people who is Carl Zimmer writes from an evolutionary point of view, but he's recognizing that these had to be buried rapidly or this could be preserved that way. They would prefer to say, the evidence shows they were buried at about 2,000 years, about 200 years per inch, but he can't say that. He has to say rapidly. Okay, now in review. Next. Peter said what? Knowing this first, that to come the last day, scoffers walking after their own lusts. And he said what? They are willingly ignorant, right? Willingly ignorant. That by the word of God, the heavens were of all standing in, the earth standing in the water, and out of the water. And what? And the world that then was being overflowed with water perish. She said are willing and ignorant of this. Peter was telling us two thousand years later that there was a global flood and the people who will deny it are willingly ignorant. See remember the ancient world they didn't deny it. Egypt had these accounts. But God knew that there was going to be an apostasy at the end when people would deny special creation by the word of God and the worldwide flood. And Peter says they are if they do it because they are willingly ignorant. And this is what he's talking about, they're willing ignorance. They're willing to look at the evidences. Next Next, vast quantities of sedimentary rocks, vast fossil graveyards, seashells all over the world, over 500 flood accounts, preservation of femoral markings, dinosaur tracks on every continent except Antarctica, evidence of rapid burial, fish in the process of eating another fish. This is what Peter's talking about. This is all over the world, but the geologists of the world who buy into evolution know about these things, but they refuse to interpret it. They refuse to interpret it. Honestly, they just make excuses for one way or another. They are willing to ignore. So in conclusion, I just want to end it by saying this, that the world is gonna to cling to evolution to the end. because Otherwise there would be no tribulation. See, so it's gonna get worse. But you and I know God's word is true And these things support our faith in the reliability of Scripture. They support our faith in the reliability of Scripture. Lot knew that God was real, but he lived in a wicked society which didn't. Noah preached for 120 years and had no converts. But he stood fast because he believed God's word is true. You people, especially you teenagers and young people, As you go forward, the amount of evangelical Christians that believe the Bible literally is going to diminish. It's going to diminish. I hope that these things will help you know that the facts, not the theories, the facts support God's word with regard to creation and worldwide flood. God's word and the worldwide flood. Each of us are lights in this world, and lights are only valuable when there is darkness. What is the value of of evolution to the secular world? Why do they cling to it? Because evolution eliminates the problem of original sin. When Adam and Eve took the fruit, that's the original sin. And all of us are part of Adam and Eve. We're all a part of them. The sperm has come down through all these ages. Your parents, your grandparents who came all the way back to Adam, So we all have a sin nature which has a willingness, ability to do both good and evil. Original sin affects us all. But if you believe in evolution, that eliminates the problem of original sin, which then eliminates the problem, It eliminates the necessity for redemption. See, if there was no original sin, there's no need for redemption. All we need is reason, the schools, the social programs. So I hope that this will be a help, an encouragement to you that, what God, we cannot see Christ coming back right now. We can't see heaven. We cannot see our salvation come to pass. Those are promises. Same promises that Abraham looked forward, and Noah looked forward, and Moses looked forward. But isn't it wonderful that what God has said about the past can be verified with our eyes. We can hold it with our hands. And I hope this will be a great encouragement to you, to have faith in the Lord just like Noah even though the population diminishes who believe in God, that your faith will be true to the end, that you will be, as God wants it to be, light in the world and salt in the world to the glory of God and to the good of many people. God bless you.